0: And we are live with our 221st episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson, at CK Tricky on X, joined by my co-host, Seth Law. Seth, say hi. At Seth Law on X, Seth say hi. Sorry.
1: <laughs> hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode, a very special episode. Ken's going to reveal some feelings about... Um, application security and uh, you know context, I guess, right? Like something like that. So, um, yeah, we're excited to have everyone. Obviously, it's just me and Ken today. We got a few topics that we want to talk talk about before we got get into it. Though, I do want to give a shout out to Redpoint uh, for sponsoring this episode. Uh, Redpoint specializes in code security for coders and is bolstered by years of experience in testing web, mobile applications, conducting security reviews, and just basically doing a great job across the board, right? I speak from experience, as you know. So um, check out redpointsecurity.com for more information and put your company on a path to better security. Thanks to Redpoint. Um, Yeah, on the flip side, it's been an interesting week. I know we're a couple of days behind our regularly scheduled show. Um, I was off uh, gallivanting across the Midwest, teaching developers about security, as one does. Um, and next week, you can find us at LazCon. Ken and I will be there. We're going ha- to do an episode of the podcast on stage live. Um, we've still got some logistics to work out. Uh, we will post the link in Slack and in chat. Um, but if you w- are going to be in la- at, at LazCon in Austin next week, Come find us. I I would like to try and do a happy hour probably Thursday night, can, next Thursday. Uh, we'll do something and get together. We'll post the details in Slack, where we're going to be, and yeah, just generally have a good time, talk to some people. Um, if you are going to be at LazCon and are interested on in being on the panel, let us know. Um, you know, we're we're more than happy to add people to that panel, um, ask questions about you, you know, your opinions on absolute on whoa man, I can't talk today, on appsec, where you think the industry's going, what you think about LLMs, you know, uh just the general gamut. So um yeah, outside of that, I, I know Ken, you're gonna be uh booth babing at uh I don't know if I'm supposed to call it that, but whatever. I, that's term at, I use. <laughs> at uh, global AppSec DC. I still struggle with the name, man. It's still like, uh, yeah.
0: Well, and then Whatever. somebody was saying that it's, there was like a question on is that like the, was that us that was talking about or someone else? Or it was like, is this the replacement for, someone asked me if it was a replacement for AppSec USA. And I was like, I don't really know what the global. It is. What that came from. It is. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cause it used to be that there was AppSec, USA, AppSec EU, and then they they changed it to global appsec and then like, oh, it's like the DC edition or the Singapore edition or whatever it is, right? It's all still the same conference. It's it's all still put on by OASP. Um yeah.
0: Yeah, I'll be there and, uh, I am looking for people to, so we have our product at, a, and I'm not trying to use the podcast to pitch if people get upset about that, but guess what? This is my, my, my time that I invested this. So I'll at least say this. If you want a private beta invite, um, it's a simple GitHub app install. It's very quick. It doesn't, yeah. uh, take any time at all. Um, yeah, hit me up on DM and in, in Slack and I'll get you an invite just really want some feedback on the process of installation and setup and see what people think so anyways I won't harp on that too long but yeah I'll be there also regarding the uh the happy hour for for next week we could also probably loop in you know some of our uh, other friends from like uh, uh like Mike and from cloud security partners and and uh, just some various folks uh out there in Austin, got quite a, a bit of obviously got quite a bit of folks out there in Austin. I'm I'm stoked to be back out there. I was just out there, but man, it's always- the food, yeah. the food, it's so good, it's so good. So um, did you want
1: to?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it is actually like, uh yeah. I, There there are a lot of positives about it. Um, I'm the the heat is not one of them. I will say that during the summer. Good thing we're going in October. Um, yep. that's a nice moderate climate, but in any case, there's going to be a lot of folks we used to work with too out there. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a fun one, man. I'm hoping to get some scooter gang activities in, uh, do a little electric scootering around town. Uh, that should be a good time. So we'll see what happens. See where, see the, see where the nights take us. So yeah. did you, what did you want to jump into first today? Cause I know we've got viewer related suggestions. We've got all kinds of stuff.
1: Maybe let's start there because this is a topic that is—I uh, mean, I know it's near and dear to, like, we've had this discussion in the past, right? Yeah, uh, we near have. and dear to our hearts, right? Um, I mean, the, the the question came up, Luke in Slack asked, right? Like, how do people feel about coding evaluations for AppSec positions? Just got denied, despite the team saying I was have a promising resume and qualifications. And then he goes on, I admitted. I admittedly don't perform well under timed coding assessments, as I get a lot of anxiety to perform well since everything is on the line, despite being a good programmer. At the end of the day, I will strive to take more coding assessments, do more online practice questions, so I can perform better in these situations. So, I I mean, I guess where to start, right? Like, how do you feel about coding evaluations, specifically for application security positions?
0: Yeah, and um, just a real quick for our viewers, uh, if you want to put your thoughts into either Slack, that's great, or if you want to put it on the YouTube uh, comments, um, you can do that as well. Uh, th- those comments are after about twenty-four hours; they are replayable, so people will be able to see your comments. Anyways, back to your your question. Yeah, I've had these before. Um, so unsuccessful, successful. Unsuccessful is somebody sitting over your shoulder, um, literally. In my case, over my shoulder, I won't harp on it. I've talked about it before. It's probably the worst interview um, I was ever given, and uh, don't don't think that you should ever put anybody under kind of like that that pressure. Best scenario I'd seen. Um, I think somebody in Slack had mentioned that they don't like time limits, but uh, this was a honor system time limit. So, you know, if you go 10 minutes over or something, I mean, I'm, sh- I'm, I'm, and I'm sure that people don't always, I mean, come on, they don't always honor those limits. I did actually. And uh, I was glad that they set that because it was more of a, you could sit there and spin your wheels forever. How about we just cap it to a uh, reasonable amount of time. They'd already tested about how long it would take for each person to do a code review. It was a very discreet, tightly coupled, sort of like, here's a, a handful of routes. Here's a you know, couple actions and a controller and, uh, you know, or or several, it was very narrowly scoped. So within that window, very easy to not only do a review, but also like we've talked, talked about many, many times is like doubling back through my methodology, our methodology and, uh, you know, making sure everything's cool. So anyways, I think that's the successful uh, thing is like, it was asynchronous. It was, I was handed code. I was told to Write that code in a, like, not only write the issue, but also my uh, suggested fix. And even better, if I could write the fix and test for it, e, A++, right? And we did it through uh, pull requests kind of flow. Um, it was really nice how it was all set up. So that was a good, I think GitHub did a great job with their interview process there. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and the other yeah. people did an awful, absolute, abysmal job. And, uh, but I won't say... Who but yeah, it was really, really bad anyways your thoughts what did, what have you yeah. experienced
1: yeah, so early on in my career i uh, so I interviewed with a company um and it actually wasn't even a was like a almost like a devops style position right like um that they were looking at um but it, i mean it like, it was pretty awful, I'll be honest, because it was an on-site interview, number one, right? Like, you know, this is pre, like, way pre-COVID days, like, you know, two years before, right? No, just kidding. Um, but way before COVID, um, on-site interview. So, like, I have no tools, no technology with me, whatever it is, go in, like, you know, because you're dressing up, you're trying to impress. Um, sit down, do, like, the written interviews, all the questions, like, all the questions, whatever. And then they're like, okay, you have two hours. Here's a laptop. Here's a laptop. Um, go code this, right? That was the that was the question, right? Like, and I'm like, okay, this is awful because number one, right? Like, you're you're not giving me an environment that I'm comfortable with. You're not giving me an IDE that I'm comfortable with or I'm quick with. Like, you know, it was just like, what are you trying to evaluate and what are you trying to get out of this, right? Like, it, it felt very much like a gotcha. A, oh well, this this DevOps guy has the one way that he does things that's currently at the company and wants to prove how good he is, as opposed to all the candidates that were coming in. Um, that's where I struggle with them. Um, as far as like application security specifically goes, I think there's we've got to differentiate between what is security engineering or like product security, building security products for engineers, um, versus application security, evaluating security of code, right? So what GitHub, like that process, what that looks like in hey, we know there's vulnerabilities in this code. Take a look. Let us know what you find. And you've got like a window of we need the results back by the end of the day on Monday, right? Like, you know, use your environment, use the tools that you're comfortable with and just kind of show it's like showcase what you can do, right? I'm very comfortable with that. That's what I want to see. On the product security side of things, I, I like I'm not opposed to doing something similar, but also again not with that pressure element of you're on site at a you know at a location in a place like with technology that you haven't used before right like hey solve this problem right like hey how would you go about solving this problem you know implementing the you know x y and z in a chosen language a language of your choice right like i i just i don't know like i <sighs> I understand the thinking behind it because they want to make sure that people have that experience um, or at least can like show their thought process in what they're actually going to do. But a software engineering, like code this function for an AppSec position, I question, right? I, I question what the purpose of that is. Yeah. That, nice. So I guess that that's where my take is on it. And, and I know there's quite a bit in there, right? Uh,
0: um, I, I, I would yeah. say, so the, where, where, where are you? Okay. So there's a read and there's a, write. That's, that's kind of what we're talking about here with code. But yeah. I will say if like you have a very small team and you have a very big mission, you need somebody that can do all things. So I totally support the idea of somebody looking for somebody that can both read and write code. And especially mm-hmm. in a product security role, I totally, I, I totally get that, um, on the flip side, what I had, or not the flip side of that, but going back to what you were saying, the problem I have with someone who's not code literate at all, um, and being able to at least do some basic coding does show some level of code literacy, mm-hmm. right? Um, the the issue I have is that, how do I say this? Like, I'm not, I'm just going to say it how I say it, interpret it as people want. When I first started at GitHub, you know, going through that process, it was, yeah, you, you should be good at both. And we're going to make sure that you are. And if you don't, you're not you're not going to be hired. And we we're a very, very small team. When we started to expand our team, we got a bigger range of people applying, right? Um, especially because I think that maybe I had applied for a senior staff role, I really can't remember. Um, and, you know, we started kind of opening it up as as it happens, as you grow, you tend to let in, because um, you have cycles for mentorship, uh, less experienced people, right? Um, so it wasn't necessarily a junior position, but it wasn't, I don't think these positions were listed as senior only. But my problem was that I was coming across candidates almost exclusively, like almost 100% of the time who were applying and had no code knowledge whatsoever. So you get into it and you're like, well, you you, you had a couple findings. They look mostly like passive scans of burp or you know, something like that. Um, let's walk through your methodology. And I would actually get people um, offended that I would ask them what their methodology was. I would get people defensive um, just at the very nature of like, okay, obviously you got that dynamically, but like in source, where's the issue? Literally getting offended, even though it's like very clear on the job description, that's what we're talking about. And that's, I gave you a code review. So um, I'll be honest. I was like, that, that did not paint a very a good picture for me as to like what or who uh, or what skills people are acquiring as they're coming up. Um, And I don't know, man, like not to just be like this curmudgeony guy or it's not even that. It's just sort of like you shouldn't apply for a job in software security if you can't do anything with software. I'm sorry. Like that sounds harsh, but it is a reality. Like I'm not going to try and tell a developer how to secure their software if I can't, if I can't at least do some basic coding myself, and also have the ability to, you know, recognize flaws in software. And I'd argue even further, my last point, Seth, is that some of the things that you're going to find as a code reviewer, not as somebody who's analyzing just the results of a SAS scan, but as a true, you know, uh, code reviewer, you're, sorry, but some of that stuff is edge casey, and it it requires that you really understand some subtleties in a language. Yeah. So... Leave it, leave it, you know, but that is a progression, right? There is journeyman to expert. I'm not saying you need yeah. to start obviously as an expert journeyman, but that's where you should try to, that's where your trajectory, in my opinion, should go.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I'm I, with you there, right? Like, I, I I definitely agree that, like, there is a base level, and we've talked about this before, right? Like, that kind of the, the best AppSec and ProdSec engineers come from soft so, a software engineering background right? It doesn't mean that you can't take another route. And we've talked to, you know, hundreds of people, I don't even know at this point, right? Dozens of people that have so many different backgrounds getting into software security and application security. Um, so it, it it's not the only route, but it's a lot easier to switch over from a software engine to a sec eng or a security engineer than it is for it to be, to be a security engineer or a network engineer and try to get into software, right? Um and that's so. So, like having a base level of knowledge there is is totally expected. Um, but this also go back to like what, what the the behavior that you saw in you know positions and people applying for positions. This goes back to my my general complaint about security training and how we like how we oh place uh, offensive techniques on a pedestal is what I want to say right? Um, I see so many, and we've talked about this from like, uh, like the security trainings that are available. Um, A lot of them that are very, like super popular, are very kind of niche topics on how I exploit, like, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to pick on any like one specific part of, of security, right? But yeah, like we get it. It's super like, Fun and interesting to go and exploit IoT devices, right? I, that is a you know it's a valid career path. I get it, but there's only so many firms and so many people that are actually doing that work, right? Um, if I'm working for you know a large bank or a large health care organization, the opportunity to do like, hey, I need to dump firmware from an IoT device is probably few and far between it's just not something that you're you're necessarily going to be doing on a daily basis and it doesn't mean you might not have a team that like works for a large healthcare organization that is evaluating iot devices that's not what i'm saying but in general the number of people that i see taking those sorts of highly specialized trainings at security conferences far outnumbers the number of positions that are actually available um, and then on the flip side of that, right? Like the 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 kind of basics. I know I always go back to crocs and socks, right? Like, but the crocs and socks of security in general. Um, I know it's not super sexy. I know it's not like you know, I, but it's so useful when it comes down to actually talking to developers and actually trying to solve software security problems. Um, and and so I I think the problem that we're having is that. We encourage people to go to these conferences. They go sign up for these security courses. You know, they get all these certifications and very, very niche things. But the jobs that are available and that we're looking for people to do don't match up with those those sorts of trainings. Um, and I know, like, you know, SANS has the basic trainings. Like, there's, there's other trainings that are out there. Um, but it's also kind of a choice that people make when they are picking out what they want to learn, right? Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't know, like I was talking to Justin at, you know, my coworker recently, like we were on this trip and we were coming back and we were talking about the number of just like random specialized devices that we had bought over the years, right? At Black Hat, at CON, at security conferences, and then, like, oh yeah, so I bought a Wi-Fi pineapple and I've used it two times. Oh, look, your flipper zero. Yes, exactly. That's the that's the latest and greatest, right? Like, oh, it's great, everybody gets these, or the you know, the Proxmarks devices. And it's just the demand from the business side of things is just not there for all of that. It doesn't mean that there's positions that that there aren't positions available for it, but they typically go to people that are teaching those courses, right? They're the ones that are super technical, have approached it, have seen like all this different stuff. And I, I I, mean, I'm kind of going off on a rant here, Ken, but it just frustrates me so much The like the, the way that we, yeah, we hero worship this, like uh, the red team, like completely owning like all of these things and, uh, and these niche topics that don't necessarily help, um, help out an organization from nuts to bolts, I guess.
0: Yeah, Yeah. no, you're you're right. And and I'd like to add one last, or at least from my, I don't have a ton, because no, so I mean, I agree with so many of your points. The other thing that was brought up though, that's kind of like, so Jacob in our Slack had said, well, you know, when it comes to, uh, so for instance, deploying a SaaS tool or SEA or whatever at scale, at mm-hmm. serious scale in difficult environments is yeah it's 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 an it's a I think his exact what he was saying was that you know we're good at like putting together stuff hacking it together making it work but in terms of scale and like proper engineering um, maybe that's that's a you know an issue and then some of the other uh like talos you know and others had kind of said well but yeah I mean if you're an engineer and you have engineering in your title like well that is kind of an expectation but Actually, I think this brings up a broader point, which is the overloading of job uh, descriptions to begin with. Like that's the one thing like we're talking so much about our responsibilities and our, you know, what we should be doing on our side and what skills we should have. But like at the same time, employers kind of just are terrible about, you know, narrowly scoping for what your expertise should be. And it's, it's much more. Or at least it used to be. I haven't looked at a job description in a while, so I might be out of touch. I'll admit, but when throughout the rest of my career, it's always been the same thing. Where it's like a million things on the job description. You're like, all right. I mean, pick a pick a sub- subset pick of a those lane. things because that's a whole. Yeah. yeah, it's a whole like skill set. So you end up with like generalists who are forced into like I got a little bit of knowledge here, a lot, and a little bit of knowledge there, and you know again whose fault is that really it's not it's nobody's fault it's just you're asking for expertise in an area that you know that person's not doesn't have that level of depth in so i think it's sometimes or oftentimes the business's fault too so there's a lot of blame to go around um but and i'm the last thing that you you mentioned was like the focus on offensive techniques and it kind of does remind me too that like you know the truth is, is you can do some pretty decent web app testing without ever actually looking at the source code from a DAST perspective, right? Yeah. yeah. Assuming, you know, you have at least knowledge of how a web app works, you don't need to be an expert. I mean, that's where a lot of us started was on the dynamic side first. We, We had code, we could look at the code, but that wasn't really what clients were asking for anyways. Most of the clients, you know, circa 2008, 2009, 2010, they're really like, they, they want to have at that time they did want to have SaaS tools like inside their organization but in terms of what they wanted from their uh, their companies like a, like a fishnet or somewhere where we were at was just yeah give it we'll give you a URL and a, a couple of accounts uh, with some credit creds for, per role that was pretty much what it was. So, you didn't need to be like a, a coding expert at that at that time. All right. We have a lot of other things to go through though too. So, I you know, is there anything else you wanted to chat in chat on this uh topic? Uh,
1: no, I I I don't think so, right? Like I know there's been some discussion in the uh, in Slack on, you know, kind of career paths and ways to actually like, you know, um yeah, and we did a blog post about that recently as well, or not recently, but early on in the absolute AppSec time. Let me see if I can find it. Like you know, things that you should concentrate on to to kind of build your career. But I mean, code is always one of the things, right? Like we're in application security, code is always going to be an issue. Um, but you know, when you're when you are trying to hire people, be cognizant of the fact of uh, you know how much code uh, is required to actually be written by the person that you're hiring and take that into account, right? Um, Not everybody has to be like a full-on senior software engineer in order to do this work, so. um, Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah,
1: cool. Okay, so next topic. Uh, You want to go with, uh, what, 23andMe? Uh, Like, what your thoughts (laughs) are on that?
0: Yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah, I saw, um, I only knew about this because Matt Johansson um, on Twitter was uh, talking about it that's the only reason I even, and then you, you shared an article, but, um, yeah, yeah, it seems like there's been a few breaches recently. What do you, do you have like, uh, thoughts on this one?
1: I do. Okay. So
0: early on, actually, you know, after we left
1: the consultancy that shall not be named, um, I actually did, I did an interview with one of these companies that is a, uh, like, uh, I mean, you could probably guess because it's based here in, you know, in the Salt Lake City area. Uh, but I did an interview with one of these companies that does the genetic, you know, mapping and all of the, you know, and you know the, the tracing, like 23andMe, right? Um, and and this was the discussion point that we got into. It was like a security architecture position that they were they were looking for. Um, was the the risk analysis of what you're actually doing with this sort of data? Like you're you're doing. DNA sequencing, at least on some level, to identify people and, and mapping out their DNA. Uh, the trust, I you know, I get it that they're a company, they want to make these connections, they want to earn money, but the level of like personal data, right, that you are giving to a third party in these cases is always mind blowing to me. Um, so, so the fact that 23andMe has been hacked, uh, you know, in and of itself, where it's there, there's some sort of breach that's gone on, stuff's been linked on the, the dark web, the deep web somewhere. Um the fact that it's happened, it's not overly surprising. We know every company gets breached at some level, right? Like between MGM and Caesars recently, these guys like this data is actually out there. Um it's not overly surprising. But what's surprising to me is the number of people that actually trust these sorts of services. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I just,
0: I mean, it's pretty you, funny you know to trust a company yeah. that blames you for their breach. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, there's something that's kind of almost hilarious about that. Yeah, yeah. If it wasn't like your data that I was getting, I've never, by the way, out of pure paranoia, that's why I've never used a service like this. I'm like, I'm not giving my JIT. Listen, I've already been I've already been breached before, okay? It's it happened. Technically it wasn't I won't get into it. But technically it wasn't me personally, but it was anyways. And what I can tell you is that for A it's a horrible feeling, right? For sure, it sucks. B, it wasn't really a big deal of what of mine got breached. It really wasn't that huge of a deal, but it still felt awful. But my genetic information, oh my god, man. Like that just feels viscerally, like <laughs> strange and weird and ugly and gross and i would not want to share my data that kind of data with anyone let alone some some anyway now it sounds like i'm blaming people i'm not blaming people i'm just saying that was like just the thought of these companies i knew this was going to happen at some point i think probably everybody expected in security this would happen at some point but for them to go and say shouldn't have reused your password it's like well (laughs) do you have yeah. cre- credential stuffing prevention do you have you know all the other security things layers of security controls we we've given people for authentication like they don't obviously it's it's tough to require people to do mfa but who knows how well they incentivized people to do mfa right there's a whole bunch of litany of things we could go through on their side that's wrong before they start and but also the fact that they blamed the users for opting into a fucking feature they developed <laughs> incredible incredible I know. I know. I, I incredible incredible <laughs> yeah that's some <laughs> real that's some real
1: that's, it, that's amazing opt-in feature called dna relatives yeah I, I, yeah i, uh, I obviously I mean. this
0: is not a security this is not that's not even really a security side of the house that we're talking about it's just like how the company decided to you know discuss this publicly it was pretty pretty yeah, wild
1: the response is pretty wild on it right and uh you know that you know that other one that i worked out right like or that i didn't work out that i interviewed at right like that was one of the things like as i'm walking out the door they hand me a kit like to you know oh well because you interviewed with this right like you can you know we'll give you the kit so you can give us our, your dna for free i was like uh there's a State Seth
0: clone in the HQ, HQ of 23andMe right <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> or whatever. Yeah. It
1: was like, yeah, no, right? Like it sat on my desk for a long time because I was just like, you understand what we do or what I do, right? Like it just, yeah, I'm with you. Like the, the paranoia there goes kind of through the roof with it when it comes to DNA and some of the other like identity stuff that's available from that. So
0: if anybody has the data and uh has a uh human clone printer. Let's get a little little uh, mini me Seth law going.
1: Mini me Seth. We can make this right.
0: happen. We we almost have the technology.
1: <laughs> we have the technology. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so there's multiple things there. I guess that's uh, that's the takeaway that we've got from this one is okay, uh, you know, number 1, you know, we're trusting like DNA and that sort of data to companies. Uh, users are always going to do this we offer a service right and you know it's an it, it's interesting i i uh, I can't disagree with that right that it's interesting to see who you're related to what your you know ancestry looks like where you came from like and there's you know there's there are definite uh, health advantages to knowing that sort of information and you know being able to you know make Informed decisions about your health. I get it. Right. Um, but trusting that data to a commercial company that that is their main claim to fame won't necessarily put the same level of security around it that, you know, say a regulated healthcare provider would. Right. Like that's, that's where I kind of, I, I, that's kind of the line that I've always come down on there. Right. So there's that. And then on the, on the breach side of it, the response from the company in and of itself is, is somewhat fascinating. Like, I, I don't know if they really had a, uh, I don't know, compliance, uh, you know, yeah. Any of that that was involved. I wonder what lawyers actually got involved with the statements as they were coming out of there. Um, but whatever it was, it wasn't the best. Nope. I think.
0: nope. Nope. Definitely, uh, yeah, definitely a bit of victim blaming there. Um, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, uh, you know, hope folks who gave their data to them, uh, you know, yeah. I, I know, I don't know. Actually, it's cu- kind of curious though. Like, like what would that, um, you know, what I'm, it would be fun, not now, but it'd be fun to kind of ruminate on the different reasons that you might want that data and what you could do with it but yeah mm. <laughs> um what's that oh okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah um cool yeah i don't know i don't really have anything else on this one i mean no real other thoughts seems like no
1: just another breach it's just another breach. like it's a sad commentary on the industry that we're like yeah just another breach this one just happened to include your dna right like good luck right like what what else you say right like but uh, you know having been involved in so many up to this point right i remember having that discussion early on with jerry right like when he came on the podcast that it was we're like okay you know we're getting to the point of breach fatigue and you can just assume that your data is out there at this point somewhere whether it's your password Mm -hmm. data it's credentials whether it's like personal data i mean credit cards, whatever it is right? at some level, it's it's there. So it becomes more about response than it does about actual like prevention.
0: Actually, that's funny that you mentioned that, because now that I'm thinking about it, I was breached for the first time, not not the only time the first time through uh, OPM, yep, through the Office that, of yeah. Personnel Management with the military uh, slash okay. contracting and uh
1: i'll I'll be honest i was too because i had um yeah we because at some point one of the consultancies i worked for had worked with opm and we had to do run through their whole background check process before we could do anything right so yeah
0: my favorite thing about being in the military uh and slash being around the military after when i contracted was that literally everything was your social security number like when i join the military, my first ID card before they went to like the uh, the, the common access cards or CAT cards as they're officially called or uh, unofficially called. Um, they would give you this like, first of all, that the, the ID was like the most easy to like replicate thing in the world. It was like paper laminated, but it has your social security number on it right away. Even when they went to the CAT cards, they still first started with social security numbers and social security numbers were used literally like like if you were asking for, I don't know, your phone number or your email address, that's that's how they used it. So when I got that OPM breach and I'm already, you know, post couple years out of the military at that point, I'm like, yeah, that lines up a hundred percent. I expected at some point my social security number is getting, you know, birthday and all wait, that stuff.
1: Yeah. Wait, uh, yeah. how old are you again?
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's my birthday? Uh, yeah. what's, uh, what's your high school? Did you go to? What was the... Actually... You know, I, I've heard from, from a little birdie that somebody has a, a birthday coming up soon I don't and, know. uh, nope. yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. 180 <laughs> second birthday. Which, was that what we landed on? Something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's of rotations around the, yeah. The that's, <laughs> oh, good times. Um, sets old. That's just what I want to say to everybody. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right. What else did we, did we have on the docket? I actually kind of forget now. Uh...
1: Um, so uh, there was this new tool that popped up um, that actually is doing some of the stuff that we talked about, right? Like uh, um, using LLMs to automate uh-huh. scans. Uh, and yes. Doing, like network sc- discovery and then, you know, taking the results from that. So, I, I mean, I haven't necessarily played with it yet. This is on my list, actually. You know, within the next couple of days, um, and so maybe we'll we'll do a demo of it. But here, let me. It's called Nebula. Um, and again, I have no idea. Like, I haven't tried it out yet. But just the fact, like we've been talking about, you need to you need to insert LOMs and AI into your testing process, or you're going to be left behind. People are already starting to do this, right? Um, Uh, So this one's, it's called Nebula. It's by Beryllium Sack. And again, I I don't know who this is. Um, It just popped up through one of the channels that I monitor. Um, But the idea here is, yeah, they're still experimenting. That's what they're saying, testing environments. But basically it speeds up the process of identifying vulnerabilities. So they're probably getting it to scan, like, hey, go run this in, like, give me something to, you know, scan with Nmap, pulling the results out of Nmap and then scanning those, like any endpoints with Zap and other things like they're kind of building their own pipeline of tools using AI to drive whether or not it would be interesting, right? Like, so I think that's a like, you're starting to get context of what's coming out of Nmap, what's coming out of Zap, what's coming out of these different tools in order to feed additional attacks, right? and i I think this is going to just spiral from here right like we're just going to see more and more of this um darpa's right like uh, initiative that they did at at defcon a couple of years ago where they were or blackout whichever one it was right where you they were using machine learning to actually try and exploit um this process is going to get better and better as it goes um and it may not necessarily be that the context is all there, but if it's efficient enough, um, it's just going to give you as a an AppSec or a project person more tools to work with and make your make you more efficient. So, you know, if you have some time, not necessarily you specifically can, but any of the listeners, and you check that out, let us know. Drop your experience with it into chat, um, into Slack, uh, because I like we want to see this stuff as it moves forward and what's actually useful, what's not. Um, And like, we can kind of crowdsource uh, use of these tools and what we're doing with AI. I
0: don't know. Yeah, I mean, I gave it. Yeah, what's yours? No, I mean, I, I, so I gave it, yeah, I gave a talk last week at OWASP Northern Virginia on contextual security analysis, where I kind of dug into the details of what, what that is and how at the end of it there's a portion there's a section on using um a, let me see if i can get the, I'll, I'll get the link for for folks here in a sec but there's a section on there of how to just get started like i gave um three things a sas app that you can log into and you can immediately start um, learning at a high level not the low level granular details but experimenting at a high level with feeding it data, giving contextual bits, formulating a prompt, and then asking in the chat questions using all those, those things together to see what, what answers you can get, how you can tune things to get more accurate. It's just, instead of having to write the code, instead of having to uh, learn the underpinning, uh, all the things that go into a chain and how they work and, and all those like details, you can start first with just getting a feel for how it kind of works. And I think that that's awesome. And then I give another link, which is an article that breaks down how chaining works, so that you can get accurate information and you can answer questions using the data that you want versus the whole internet's LLM, you know, data repository. And then the last bit is just a book that I recommend to people. Um, it is a very thin book, as you can see. It is the "What Is uh, Chat GPT Doing?" and why does it work those resources i think are um yeah fairly i'm trying to get a link here but um i think they're helpful and my point was you can use this to answer a lot of questions like i'll give you a concrete example inside of our inside of our uh, secure code reco- secure code review course we talk a little a lot about actually the information gathering behavior analysis kind of the us gathering context on what this application is, what is its technology stack and all of these things. So one example of like using this that I show in this um, example of these slides is taking a package file. So whether it's a package.json or a you know, requirements.txt or a pom.xml, whatever it might be, feeding that into your data set as a data set and then asking questions against it. And you'd be surprised how accurate it is at telling you which libraries are security, potentially security impacting, which libraries are used for authentication, and authorization, and for data stores, what type of web technology we're working with. And that's just from a single package file. That's one area that you can use. Uh, your, you can use LLMs. And more, more importantly, the concept of chaining to take... This is where it gets really fun. Take tribal knowledge... And i can I consider tribal knowledge just stuff that's stored in all of our heads from working in our environment, our organization, but that necessarily isn't always written down or isn't known by everybody and uh, if you were to leave goes with you right and it's not something that scales very easily because it's again it's it's the handful of knowledge so what you can do with tribal knowledge is you can write it down, you can vectorize it, and you can start asking questions about things that are that are going on in your environment and use those as a reference point right I can ask. This code's changing. Does it does it match any previous bug bounty submissions? I mean, that's obviously what I'm working on with, with what I'm doing with, with LLMs. There's a lot of things I'm, I'm doing like that. But these are some of the examples I give people. Of, like, don't sleep on it because if you learn how to fine tune and if you learn how to feed the right data, if you learn how to chain it all well and you use it for the right things, then you have a real recipe for success there. And you can scale out your tribal knowledge. And that includes you know, not just like knowledge about, is it your, um, not, not just knowledge around like, uh, specific ways of doing things or tribal knowledge of like, like I said, previous patterns of, of bug bounty things, but you, you can feed it like things like you can, one of the examples I give is giving like a chat bot, uh, creating a chat bot and like Twenty lines of code or less, or something like that, and so you can write all that stuff down. Write write all that stuff. Meaning, like, hey, if somebody asks a question about this, direct them to that that team. Or if they ask about this, then go there. Or here's the answer for that thing you're looking for. It's so versatile. It really comes down to how do you how do you want to use it. So I mean, let me get this link for folks. And uh, I'd love to give this talk again. It, it wasn't recorded. Um, it was it seemed well received uh um, yeah. yeah so anyways i'm gonna while I'm find that link you you can on well, you know, on <laughs> you know <laughs> instead uh, of me
1: when we when we get to midwinter nights or whatever, right, like the application absolute appsec con, you know uh we can we can have you give that one again, right like it'd be a good one to have um but you know that's what I wanted to say, right like I think that's where a lot of people struggle is where to get started. Um, it's one thing to go and and you know just prompt open AI for specific things, but how to get your specific knowledge set into a into a model and then be able to query it um is obviously going to be more valuable as we move forward, right? So whether that is like this tool is doing, right? Like like Nebula is taking Nmap data and from there is attempting to identify uh, resources that can be scanned with Zap, right? Um, that's a, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a natural progression in this. Um, but part of that is knowing, okay, from Nmap, we know that port 443 or any of the web responses are probably going to have some sort of web application running on it. And then from there, it's easier to feed into Zap, but it's got to be guided at some level, right? It needs that context, exactly what you're saying. Um, and so, yeah, like giving people those resources where you've done that. And I know you've mentioned what base plate and a couple of the other. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Base plate.
0: Lang chain was, you know, it, it kind of starts off here. Base plate or a similar offering. There's a, there's another one. I can't remember off the top of my head that looks pretty promising too. And then below that is like another level of abstraction, but far more. Far more fine-tuning, far more options. gets way more complicated. It's a lang chain. And then, of course, you can do your own like stuff from, from very, very scratch. And, yeah, I wish you the best of luck because uh, I'm not at that level. I'm not a neural network expert. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, don't need to be. That's the thing. That's the whole point. So, hey, by the way, I put the slides or the repo that has the slides but also some uh, basic chat code in Python you can play around with. Um, up at that link um, just so you can start uh, if you want to read the slides or if you want to get started with like coding up with LangChain, some of your own stuff um, and give be all those resources. So hopefully it's helpful to someone. Sweet. Cool. Well, this yeah. is the way it is, dude. Like think about this. Think about this, right? You're really good. You, you, you as Seth Law, there are like frameworks that you're really good at. There are languages that you're really good at, and you have those nuances stored in your brain, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. I have different sets of frameworks and different things I know. Now, what if we all came together and started putting our, our heads together and started vectorizing that information and asking questions against it? That's where I think the world gets very interesting. And furthermore, to date, the biggest argument I make in this talk is we've used a singular, shitty, flaky data point, which is SAST or DAST results, and that's what that determines whether or not you're allowed to ship code. It's ridiculous. We should expect better. We have many more signals, many more factors than just the raw patterns of what code is changing to include a lot of other things. I talk about the slide methodology, how there are, you know, hey, if there's new routes being added by somebody that's never touched this repo before, and by the way, we can't even determine who this person is because they don't have verified commit signatures. And oh, by the way, hey, some other code that they're submitting looks like a pattern that matches a previously seen bug bounty submission. Like, why are we not using all of those signals together to to determine risk? Because that's that's ultimately what a SaaS product's doing. So that's kind of my whole pitch on where we see sort of this like, because LLMs rely so heavily on contextual knowledge, but also, like I said, kind of formalizing tribal knowledge, so that if you take this, this approach where you're taking multiple signals, you combine it with a mixture of deterministic and probabilistic techniques, you're going to come away with a much more positive signal for risk. When I say determin- deterministic versus probabilistic, I mean, I'd, I'd argue LLMs are all about prob- probability, right? I mean, that's I don't I don't even know if that's even an argument. And deterministics okay. more like, here's an exact match, right? Here's the exact like you match this exact thing. I'm not I'm not looking for probabilities of whatever. I'm just saying like, hey, like for example, one of the things uh, that I use as part of Slide is, hey, if a user configured sensitive file, meaning something that's very, uh, you know, very important, if it's changed by anybody other than uh, an allowed author or has not been approved by an allowed approver, like that's that's a signal for risk, right? That's deterministic. That's just saying here's the exact file and exact people allowed to touch it. But probabilistic would be more like, and this is another thing I do, which is like saying, okay, based off of tribal knowledge of which files could potentially be kind of like scary, uh, depending on a few factors, your 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 application, but also like the technology stack in general you're using, Here's like a warning that there might be something, you know, sensitive being touched. So I'm not trying to put all the cat out of the bag, but that's, that's the thing is it's not just deterministic or probabilistic to advance this thing forward. It's that you need, you you still need both, but you you shouldn't be using one signal to like secure your software as it's changing. So, all right, that's my soapbox, man. That's where I, that's where I think CSA is going to shine. Yeah. And actually I'm not off my soapbox because we, because soapbox, one last thing, sorry, we are working on a guess guests who work as defenders i won't say it yet but they're actually the first example i've seen of a practitioner blue team building their own kind of csa thing without calling it csa so we're working on yeah. that too it's going to be really dope they said yes we're just working on timing
1: yeah i i mean it, it it's funny like it at this point it kind of it we're starting to we you and i like the industry as a whole right like we're starting to realize that it or it's becoming more obvious that context is exactly what we're looking for—the context of what we're looking at, the risks that are associated with it. For years, we've been so, we've been so focused on. And again, this goes back to kind of those red team tools, what we've had that's been available on, like this, this signal of you're either vulnerable or you're not, right? Hey, you're, you know, from a, a vulnerability detection perspective, the vulnerability scanners go out and they look for. Are, you know, is this truly exploitable? And when it is, that's when they flip up their flag and they say this needs to go pat be patched or you have this very specific version. Um, and we're, we, we've struggled for years to get away from that and realize what the real risk of an application is when we don't know the vulnerabilities that exist in it. Um and so the signals that you're talking about, the context that you're talking about, the prioritization is kind of what we've embedded in our into our tribal knowledge, building out the you know secure code review process, that framework, but also like how we approach security and risk, you know, with all of these different companies and is what we've done over the last you know decade. Um and it it feels like LLMs, it feels like AI is pushing us over the edge as far as hey, now there's an easier way to identify what those signals are and based on the probabilistic algorithms that are, that are built into that, and I don't have to comb through 2 million line of, lines of code manually anymore, right? Or I don't have mm-hmm. to build a process to do that. If I can vectorize that here and I can query it and ask questions that I need the answer to in order to determine whether or not it is risky, I'm going to do that because it will speed up that process. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine asking based off of a package file, what are you? What is this app built on? And then from there, looking at your other knowledge base that you said, like vectorized, right? And saying, based off of that, what do we know could be a potential concern in this code? And even further, like not just the code itself, but configuration-wise or the changes that are coming across, like, are any of these things potential signals? I mean, if you see a settings.py in a Django framework or Django app being changed, right? And then you see maybe some like hashing options for passwords or whatever it might be. It's like, dude, like that, that may not, it, it may be popped on, on a SAS scanner. Great. But like, I think there's, there's uh yeah, it may be, it may pop, but you know, some of the more subtle stuff may be more difficult to detect, right? Um, yep but just by knowing like some hey i've already put into somewhere that if these things get touched and they match these certain patterns and kind of just chaining the results of your different calls together to like provide what am i trying to say like a multi-step contextual gathering and determination probabilistic determination of whether or not there is a a risk there
1: yeah yep yep and that's yeah i mean we're getting there right like I, i i'm excited I, again, like the reason that this comes up almost every week in their discussions nowadays is I think we're excited about the possibilities and we're excited yeah. where things are going and how that's growing from a tool perspective. I, I know that like that tool that I shared with Nebula or whatever probably isn't the end all be all, but it's, it's pushing it's pushing that needle along. Same thing with the stuff that Haddix that Jason is doing on his side, right? Like it's moving that needle. So we've got to be aware of it. We've gotta, We've got to use those tools at some level. So, um, yeah, that's kind
0: of my my whole thing to the industry is that technology, here's the last point Seth, is that by the time new technology is adopted by develop first of all that the cycles for adopting new technology by developers is it feels like it's getting quicker and quicker. I'm learning about new things all the time and it just feels like it's accelerating, not getting like a like a smaller ecosystem, right? So now we, we have a situation where by the time adoptions already occurred on something like now our tooling is trying to catch up. Now we're trying to do the research on the things that are like an issue and trying to then get your vendors. Like if you're a person who is bought into a vendor, you're completely, unless somebody does something open source, you're completely relying on them catching up to this new technology that's been adopted and writing rules for it and supporting it. Alternatively, alternatively, you could, instead of writing Uh, you know, SaaS rules for this, right? You could have somebody do a little bit of homework on that framework and upload that knowledge base somewhere to an open community, and then potentially have people use that as part of their knowledge base. And so why I'm saying that is, imagine if OWASP cheat sheets or something like that could be turned into for new things that are being, uh, put in just another knowledge base. And then you use all your existing plumbing and tooling as it is. And then it just goes out there and looks at it. I know it seems probably, you know, Hey, that sounds just like writing rules. It's not the same. You know, if we're going towards more of an open standard there, it's taking the power back into your own hands. You can write your own tooling. You can do this stuff. So, um, anyways, I just think that like, we're, we're never writing, able to write tools to keep up enough. We have to, we have to expand, we have to, gather knowledge bases and sources from a lot of different areas. And, um, that's the only way to keep up with, with all of, all of the tech stack changes that occur.
1: Yep. Yeah. And so I'd encourage people to go out and, you know, review the stuff that you've put in there, try it out themselves, the tools that are available. Um, yeah, but I mean, otherwise we've been going for an hour, Ken, I do have a hard stop today. So I need to, I need to, um, jump, um, any final thoughts that you want to add to that uh, before we, we go ahead and close things out today?
0: I think people are done hearing me talk, but uh, what about you? Anything you want to leave everybody with? Uh. Go
1: try it out, right? Like I just like I said, I, I mean I think that's kind of where I'm at. I'm not as far along in the process as you are, right? Like I know you've been you've had a lot, you know, you've had more time with it. And so the resources are out there and available to us, but you know, try out the tools that Jason and Ken are suggesting. Um that's that's what I'm doing. And then jump into chat and let's talk about it. I'd love to see how other people in our positions are utilizing uh, AI to actually improve their process and we'll share as well as we, and we all go through it together.
0: So. Yeah, man. All thank right. you for, uh, for, for uh, the podcast yeah. today, man. That was a fun, those yeah. are fun topics. It's a good time. Yeah, good time. And, and yeah. I just, I, and also this needs to be said you hopped off a flight at damn near midnight last night. Haven't had any rest and went right pretty much right into the podcast. So, uh, Kudos, extra kudos to you, man. That's not easy. I know how that sucks. So good good job.
1: It's all good. It's all good. You know, it's just, you know, another day in the life, right? So, um, all right. Well, uh, along those lines, uh, thanks to Redpoint. Thanks to Dry Run, right, for sponsoring as well. And we will catch up with everyone next week. Our podcast will be on Friday um, because it is, or actually, no, we have one on Monday with Leaf. And then we have Friday, the uh, panel at Lazcon. So we've got two episodes coming next week. Watch out for those. Um, otherwise, we'll catch you all online, join Slack, and we'll continue the conversation there. Thanks, everybody.
0: Oh, thanks.